I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The making of wine has all sorts of philosophies, ideas, and dogmas that different producers adhere to. And the packaging of wine is no less subject to differing opinions. Today, I'll be leaking some information about closures in particular. Amphorae were sealed using a variety of different methods. Some amphorae found in Egypt were sealed with dried earth and linen. The dried earth could then be stamped with seals depicting contents or origin. Linen, cloth, or string could be tied around the handles, pressed into the mud, and covered with a seal to indicate that the contents had not been adulterated from the origin point. Much like how today, DOC strips from Italy can be found covering many Italian corks as a symbol of provenance. Some of the earliest cork evidence has been excavated in Campania, where a honey-filled amphora, stopped with a cork, was found in a sealed chamber. About 2,500 years old, the vessel still had aromatic honey inside. Corks were being used by Etruscans and in Athens around 2,000 years ago to seal wine-filled amphorae, and were probably being used even earlier. Greeks and Romans sometimes used cork to seal amphorae, sometimes cork covered with pitch, and frequently just pitch itself was used to cover the opening. If the wine wasn't traveling and would be consumed soon, Often a layer of olive oil on top of the wine would be used to protect the wine from the air. In medieval times, wads of leather or cloth were popular, and sometimes cloth soaked in oil would be used. Barrels changed the game a bit. When barrels became the modus operandi for shipping liquids around the world, many people would buy wine by the barrel and store the barrel in their home, tapping it to remove the liquid at their own pace. Corks on a grand scale became more useful when glass bottles hit the scene, and particularly glass bottles for molds with opening diameters that were known in advance. An early patent for a bottle-producing machine was granted in 1821. But even earlier than this, glass stopples were recommended in a cider treatise dating to 1676. And the author also wrote of the spoilage problems you can have with corks, thus explaining the glass stopple endorsement. The glass stopples, however, were difficult to remove without breaking the bottle, and they fell out of fashion. But we're seeing a bit of a glass stopper comeback in recent years. More recently, experiments with alternate shipping packaging and closures has abounded in the wine world. 
especially in regions that are far away from hotbeds of natural cork sources. Australia and New Zealand, for instance, are just about as far away from the classic cork-producing regions as you can get. And the farther from the source, the heavier the price to get the product, and often the less of the best product there is available for you, once the closer markets have bought up the best stuff. Bad batches of corks have caused many problems in Australia and New Zealand, to the point where producers there have been revolutionary in seeking out alternative closure methods. Many producers have started using bottle caps, like beer bottle caps, for both still and sparkling wines. And of course, the screw cap has been influential, especially over the last 15 years or so. The screw cap received a patent in the UK in 1889 and first saw some serious commercial success in the whiskey business at Whitehorse Distillers. In 1964, Peter Wall from Yolumba in Australia asked the French company Le Bouchage Mécanique to help with an alternate enclosure. Soon, Stellcap wine closures used cork wadding covered with a layer of paper, and they look similar to today's screw caps. Later, Stelvin wine closures came on the market, which use a neutral plastic material at the top of the cap. By 1973, Yolumba and a group of other Australian wineries were experimenting with Stelvin, and commercial bottlings closed with screw caps were released in 77 and possibly in 76. But by 1984, Yolumba went back to corks after negative customer feedback. But the pendulum swung again, and by the late 1990s, several Aussie producers were going back to Stelvin closures, in particular for Riesling bottlings. In 2000, several producers in the Clare Valley teamed up and switched to bottling high-end Riesling with screw cap closures. They used the slogan, Riesling with a twist, and their campaign met with great success. Grosset was a part of this group, and as one of the high-quality wine producers in Australia, Jeffrey Grosset has been a leader in the screw cap movement ever since. Keep listening to hear more about his story and his influences on wine, as well as wine bottle closures. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
Jeffrey Grazit of Grazit in Australia in the Clare Valley. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm extremely well, Levy. Great to be here. Nice to have you here. Thank you. So, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Adelaide, and uh, when I was 15, I decided to that I really wanted to be a winemaker and enrolled to go to Roseworthy College. And when I was 16, I went off there. It's perhaps a little bit more common for younger people to get into winemaking in Australia? Yeah, well, I guess at that time, my father came home with some wine. He, you know, they drank some sherry, that's all. And I think that was pretty typical of what a lot of Australian families were up to at, at that point. And so he brought some wine home and shared it with the family. And I tasted my first wine uh, when I was 15. And I thought, well, this is really what I'd love to do. And that's about the 1960s in that era. Yeah, yeah. I'm 61 now, so that's uh, that would be correct. And so when you went to Roseworthy, how many other people were around your age group? Uh, they're all older than me, but there were 20 in a group and they graduate every second year. So they were putting out about 10 a year and they would, they would have been on average a couple of years older than I was at the time. What was the scene like there? I mean, what did it feel like? Well, I studied agriculture first, which involved viticulture. That was very much dominated by farming family, you know, guys, basically all, all guys. Uh, and then in enology, it was a bit of a mix of people who um, some had heritage, like the name's Redmond. There was a, you know, there was a Redmond there and a Purbrick, um, Shadow to Bilk. And so there were a few families already coming through, but the majority were like me, just uh, decided this was a career they wanted to pursue. What was the wine industry like at that time? I mean, that's a long just, time ago in a way. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just starting. Uh, and that's the thing. It was expanding really quickly. So what I found was uh, the advice that I was given was that this was a career that, you know, should be very rewarding for me compared to, say, uh, architecture, which I was interested in, or boat building, something like that. You know, that was, that was tough stuff. Uh, wine industry was booming. And so uh, what happened then is that I... I got a job before I finished, so I was five years studying. At 21, I'd finished two diplomas, already had a job. Uh, I think I'd done four vintages by then anyway, just, you know, working for experience. Got employed by Seppold, spent a couple of years, then went overseas, worked in Germany rather than most of the guys I knew were heading to France, but I thought that was a good option. Came back, got a job uh, with a big company, Lindemann's, and ended up at 26 a senior winemaker for the largest, I think, facility in the Southern Hemisphere at that time. So we were doing about 9% of Australia's white wine production. So that was a very quick progression, fast-tracking a career because things were moving so quickly. Were things moving quickly into a society that had been drinking fortified wine like, like your dad to a society that was embracing dry, still wines? Yeah, it's interesting because two things are documented. I don't know which one's correct. I think the both. Uh, what was happening is I think people like my family were just discovering wine. Uh, a lot of people said it was because of our migration policy and we were getting Italians and Greeks coming in, Europeans basically, where that was part of their culture. I think the other thing, though, and was that uh, a lot of Australians were traveling overseas and they were getting all this exposure to what hadn't happened in Australia. And they were coming back saying, you know, I think I, think I like this idea of having some wine. Combination of the two meant that it was, it was taking off quite dramatically. 
So does that mean there was kind of a rise of an Australian middle class that could afford to travel and afford to drink wine? Yeah, I think so. I think that was, that's what it was. You went to Germany and why'd you make that decision? I loved Riesling even then. Some of the first wines I tried were Rieslings and I thought they had equal merit. I loved uh, Cabernet blends and later I really enjoyed Burgundy. I really enjoyed um, Pinot and Chardonnay, but that came later. So I was mad on Cabernet blends and Riesling. And I think because I felt that there was less attention given to Riesling that uh, maybe I'd go down that track, you know, the less beaten path. And so I went off to Germany. A friend of mine, uh, Trevor Mast, was um, graduated from Geisenheim and uh, he had lots of friends. And so I did a vintage over there and, uh, and loved it. Because there are a lot of German settlers in Australia, right? There is a connection to certain parts of Australia. Yeah, very much. Uh, in, in our region, uh, a, a lot of it was settled by Europeans, uh, you know, Polish as well as German, a, a real mix, but there's a significant German heritage, I guess. So you were working for Lindemans, and what was white wine production like at that time, was, at that level? Yeah, it was big and fast. So, uh, you know, we, I remember once going to work and there were like 20 semi-trailers lined up at the gate. You know, there'd been a bit of a hold-up overnight. And, and so we were doing about 1,000 tonnes a day of um, cheap, you know, cheap white wine, really, just, just processing in a, in a more industrial sense. However, we, I think we and the five other winemakers that were there all loved this because we could make good wine, you know, just like very acceptable but not really complex wine, but um, lovely wine that fitted a market then without it being characterless. You know, it, it, it looked okay. I think it was, I think it was okay. And we enjoyed the fact that this was part of a massive change occurring in Australia. Was white wine kind of a new thing in Australia? I mean, I know that there was grapes planted, but the yeah. idea of a dry white wine you know, yeah. made in a way that wasn't making it like red wine. Was that kind of yeah. new at that time? Well, I, yes, I think so. I mean, the, the, the changes that occurred in the 60s were refrigeration, stainless steel tanks, you know, all those things uh, that are just all old hat now, all those changes. But they, uh, that meant that, um, you know, cleaner wines that, that are just fresher, um, not necessarily reflecting place and all of that because they, they showed varietal character, but they're pretty straightforward. That was all improving with, I think, our expertise. That was improving a lot. So we were getting, we were getting pretty good at producing good quality wine at a base level uh, that was sort of clean and fresh. And so, from an ex, you know winemaking point of view, I think we we were finding that we were refining uh, what we do and uh, probably doing it better in many ways than anywhere else in the world at that at that time. For processing that kind of volume and doing it without yeah. defects. Yeah, that's it. So not a, that's exactly it. In terms of expertise, yeah, specifically producing bulk wine of good quality. That must have given you a chance to examine fruit from different areas of Australia. There's probably all kinds of stuff coming in that you were sorting through. Yeah, we, we had bits, of, bits and pieces of some uh, really high quality as well as a high volume. I think at that point, what I found, what I always thought was, it's great training for me and for the other for the other winemakers there. This is really like the, you know, the chef's apprentice story. You know that you you learn uh, the basics in in the Riverland where it's pretty hot, uh, fruit goes off really quickly. You need to know what you're doing and be very focused, very clear, and and a lot of emphasis on hygiene because things go off quickly. 
And so really the basics get drilled into you, I think. And that's what happened to me. And I thought this was really good, you know, winemaking 101, you know, practical, had all the other theory, but this was really good stuff for me. And then you went and worked in the 1970, mid-1970s with a Riesling specialist. Yeah, I, I spent just one vintage with this guy, John Vickery, who I think was, you know, went on to be acknowledged as the, the, the great Riesling maker in Australia. And one thing, it, it wasn't really mentoring as such to me. I, don't, I didn't see it as that. I just worked with him enough to realize that I think it was okay, I got out of it, that it was okay to be really fussy about hygiene, cleanliness, and attention to detail, all those things that some people see a bit boring. So to me, it was the talent, the creativity in winemaking, but without that attention, it really wasn't going to be entirely fulfilled, you know, what your ability and the potential of the fruit that you, you're working with. So I think it just, to me, it just said, it's okay to be really that fussy. And if other people don't like it, then, you know, too bad. Because if they're working with me, that's what they do. You understood it as your job to take what was in the grape and get as much of that into the bottle in terms of potential. Uh, yeah, that's it. And and so to me, keep the, the, I mean, the creative side to me was to know what was good fruit and what was potentially great fruit. That is, uh, take, a, take a potentially great variety like Riesling uh, and then it needs to be planted in an exceptional place. Otherwise, it's not going to be exceptional wine. So once you get that right, uh, you've got the right variety in the right place, then you've got a lot of potential. So my feeling is bring that, coax that out, as it were, with, with some, I guess, respect and in some cases restraint or, you know, a lot of, lot of understanding, I think, goes into getting the best out of that particular combination. And I think, you, you know, to me, I felt that I needed to have all the, the knowledge, the technical knowledge, and then use everything everything you know and understand everything you've learned to to bring that through to the wine that's in front of you that should be you know beautiful and expressive and 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 tell you something about the variety and the place so what was your next move yeah so when i was 26 i uh i i decided this was great but i really wanted to explore the making my my own wine so i looked at the clare valley it was already producing some amazing Riesling and some pretty exciting Cabernet blends to me. And I thought, uh, I reckon, you know, I'd just like to explore how far that could be pushed in terms of, uh, terms of quality and reflecting the place. So I found an old um, milk depot that was up for sale. It was, a bit run, it was really run down. It was in my budget, which is, you know, low at the time because I'd been working, but I didn't have a lot uh, so you weren't well capitalized. You didn't have like a lot of partners throwing money at you. No, and uh, no, and my my parents were, you know, both had worked and they were quite well off, but they weren't up for um, anything like what's involved to start a winery. So I just I just bought this place and then I just mortgaged it. I went to what was called a lender of last resort. I got as much money as I could out of them as well in in a nice way, of course. And then I I bought what equipment I could with the money that I raised and started, and started really small. So just myself, a few hundred cases of wine in 1981, three Rieslings and a Cabernet uh, I made in, in 81 to start. And what was the Claire like at that time? 
it was um, it was about sixteen winemakers from memory, or 15, sixteen wineries. Now it's about forty four. I don't know; it'd probably be half the volume or less of what's planted now. It was a pretty quiet place. It's a rural place with a little little bit of tourism uh, compared to the Barossa Valley, which is nearby, which is a lot of tourism by comparison, even though it's only 80, 80 50 miles away. And so it, ha- it was a pretty peaceful place. The, the growers that I went to, because I didn't have any vineyards, I told them my story and what I was very touched by, even to this day, is that they referred to their vineyards as gardens. And it really, because I remember I sat on the, on the veranda and this guy said, do you want to see my garden? I thought that was a little bit, uh, you know, odd. But of course, he's referring to a walk in the vineyard. And they, they hand-tended a lot. After that, it, it was a bit disappointing, but after that, there was a lot of move pressure to mechanise, to reduce the cost. In the um, Clare, there was. In the Clare, yeah. And it was pretty general in a lot of regions in Australia where the prices, uh, the real, the, the prices in real terms to growers went down. And so at the time, they could afford to do all this. And I remember that's where I started. And some of those wines were really 1981 and two, you know, looked really very good. I think, and that was because of the fruit. And so when I got my own vineyards going later, my focus was always on what's now known as organics, but, you know, a lot of it is really about complexity and diversity, giving a lot of resilience and not going in hard, not going in with chemicals where you don't need to and not knocking out species where you don't need to. And so try and get, you know, it sounds a bit cliche, but trying to get species and complexity to work you know, the environment to work with you rather than sort of fighting it and trying to plough everything out and put all the energy into the vines, which was a 1980s thing. And I think everyone knows now that's a, it's very unsustainable. Was that a, a response to the expense of vineyard labour? Is vineyard labour expensive in Australia? Yes, it is. And because uh, there's a minimum pricing and so it's, it's much higher than in Europe. You know, one of the side effects of a, a very good standard of living in, uh, in Australia and minimum uh, price for labor. So it's like a minimum wage. You have to pay them a certain amount. Yeah. Yeah. And so for us, it's uh, it's about $28 now to for a picker. For a, and if I, this year I had 60 pickers going because it was a fast vintage and uh, it was wonderful. But if you multiply 60 by 28, it's quite a big number. Um, so to me, it was to do with just pressure on costs. And the the difficulty is I love technology. Um, if it's going to improve quality, there, should, there are heaps of examples of that. However, a lot of the moves were uh, to use technology to cut costs or for convenience and not to improve quality. So there was a bit of a slide, I think. And that was probably the start of or a contributor to Australia losing its edge to some extent in terms of perception i think internationally but that's at the high end it started to be known for lower end wines i think so yeah i think here for example it seemed that australian wine was appreciated as exciting and you know generous fruit really some really stylish and um, very appealing wines and then uh, the popularity seemed to move i'm talking generally we're still we hope we were still doing exciting stuff um but I think the perception here shifted as people saw uh, a market that loved Australian wines so they could jump in with wine specifically for here and uh, with labels that, to be honest, we'd never even seen at home. And, of course, the big boulder, particularly Shiraz, 
you know, that specific style that really wasn't even that popular in Australia became very popular here. So basically, I think we moved from being, you know, exciting and, and, and good value as well to not so exciting and and not really good value in many cases. And so Australia, as a, as why I see it, came off the boil pretty quickly in in this market. But the Clare is kind of a cooler climate area, so maybe less susceptible to some of those interests looking for big fruit wines. Yeah, it doesn't suit. You know, the Clare Valley makes some lovely Shiraz as well as Cabernet blends. And those wines are, are not big and blocky to me, not at all. So they didn't really fit into that category that was running hot. And so in that respect, the Clare Valley seemed to miss some of that really high trend-driven expansion. And so in a way, and of course, Riesling, the great thing about Riesling in a way is it missed the boom altogether. People didn't race out and plant Riesling because Riesling wasn't booming internationally. It wasn't generically what people wanted. So uh, when you look at where the Riesling vineyards are in the Clare Valley, they tend to be in well-sided positions and the expansion didn't cause it to go out into the marginal areas. And so in that respect, there's quite a, it's a legacy really that's to our benefit. What did the growers in the Clare tell you about Riesling when you arrived there? They said that the, the best subregion section or part of the Clare Valley was the Watervale subregion. So around the township, for those who might know the Clare Valley, it's about what, 15 miles by four miles wide. And in the middle is the Watervale township. And around there, there's a lot of red loam or clay loam over limestone. Oh, that's interesting. So it shares with the Barossa the fact that it has a red soil. Yeah, yeah. And quite common in, in Waterval is this basically shallow topsoil. You could just dig through it with your hand and you get onto this crumbly rock, cream rock. And so the roots can get down into that. And it acts as sustaining the vines if it's a dry season. So these guys said to me, this is really the best, certainly the most reliable for Riesling because Riesling vines don't want to be stressed prematurely. If they lose their basil leaves, they can get sunburn on the fruit and then they get that little bit of petroleum character and all these off characters. The basil leaves are the first ones to turn brown and shrivel, right? Yeah, the basil leaves, uh, yes, so closest, right on the bottom. And so the idea is to keep it healthy, uh, but not too vigorous, but keep it healthy. And that gave it to us. So the growers said, go for this. This is really the best. There were some other areas that had a lot of slate and shale. And in fact, that's where the Grosset Polish Hill came from. And as you can imagine, where it's got shale and slate, the roots can't fully exploit the area that, that they're given. And uh, the vines can be all different sizes and they have to all be pruned individually depending on how much soil they've got that the rock isn't taking up. So locals said maybe stay away from that. But in fact... The character, the quality that these vines produce is very distinctive. And I think that's why, I never expected it, but I think that's why Grosset Polish Hill has become uh, really so successful when in fact I just thought it was very distinctive wine and I wanted to, I wanted people to see this wine that was not typical of the region but very, very distinctive and reflective of this rock profile that it, where it was grown. Polish Hill had a harder rock than you would have found in Watervale, and, and in fact that you did find in Watervale because you purchased fruit from both. Yeah. And yeah. it was more susceptible to water stress. Yeah. So Polish Hill, the name that I adopted for the wine, was from an area known as Polish Hill River, a settlement by Polish people in the 1840s. 
And uh, yeah, there's a lot of rocky sites there. And the site that I happened to stumble upon, I suppose, literally, was extreme shale and slate. And generally considered by my viticultural training as the most inappropriate. And I, I found it by accident. An academic had it out in his backyard, really. He used to come and sit in the cottage on the weekend. And there were these few acres out the back. And I was doing a bit of postgraduate study. Uh, I met him. And he said, why don't you just take over these few acres at the back uh, of his cottage? And from that, I discovered this combination of most inappropriate soil and its effect on Riesling. So it didn't come from my training at all. I just bought the block next door as soon as I could when I tracked the soil and rock profile. And I started planting it up because I reckon I said literally stumbled on something. So originally you were purchasing fruit from both of those aspects of the Claire and you decided not to blend them together. You yeah. Uh, yeah. So 1981, that was the first easy decision, I think. I uh, had the two wines on the bench in my little winery and I thought I could put these together because one's got late flavor and almost a richness uh, and the other has lovely lime or lemon lime early. So... I tend to think in patterns and in my head, these two patterns, you know, sort of overlay really well, uh, but it didn't work. The character of each was diluted, really. It didn't, it, the blend wasn't anywhere near as distinctive as each separately. So I looked at that and I thought, I really need to show people this. I want to show people. So I released the two wines and funny enough, it never bothered me that you know, I couldn't afford any a smallest hitch early because I had no resources in reserve. But I never had any doubt about this. And I put them out there and people people actually said, are you sure? They didn't go, wow, this is a revelation. I think they, they weren't necessarily convinced that this was entirely same variety, same region, but just two different soil types that they could be so dramatically different. And now in Australia, they're often referred to as the testament to the importance of place. But really, that sounds quite grand to me. I, I just wanted people to, to taste them. Were people talking a lot about terroir in Australia in the 80s? No, not at all. It really, I'm not even sure that I'd heard the word uh, used, like generally, I'm sure uh, on an academic level. But it wasn't, terroir wasn't a word that was used. Now it's uh, seen as you know, winemakers, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, well, of course, a bit, you know, adopting a bit of a French, you know, body language and say, this is the way it is. They do that thing with their lips where they all like yeah, that. Yeah, like that. yeah <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, the that's motorboat. A, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 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 they certainly get the shrug, you know. <laughs> you and, the uh, you shrug, know, yeah, the, the, yeah, one, the shrug, one shoulder higher. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Palms of their hands, you know, yeah, right. forward go. But that's... um. It, you know, it wasn't like that at all. No, in 1981, it was, well, uh, no, let's have a look at it. So I, I cross-planted clones. I looked at viticulture. I wanted to make sure that I ticked off a little checklist that it wasn't due to something else. But same variety, wasn't clonal. It was just purely the place or the locale. And I got a lot of satisfaction, I think, out of doing that. And, in, and the wines themselves to me were exciting and they were very distinctive and really, that's what I wanted, always wanted to do. I think I always wanted to make wines that were very satisfying and made people take notice. It wasn't about winning shows or making the best wine, you know, Riesling in Australia or the world or any of that. Funny enough, that was never an issue. It was always about the excitement, about how beautiful 
uh, you know, a glass of wine could be, you know, how much it could give to the consumer. And in fact, you didn't even enter into shows. It's not something you've done. No. So when I left my last job, uh, I think we had one winemaker dedicated to shows. She used to spend all the time entering every show, and I think we won pretty much every show in Australia at the time. This was a large company, Lindemann's. But to me, it was a great training ground to show if you, there were faults. So you had a, a panel, an experienced panel, checking out your wine. And to me, uh, I, uh, it might seem a bit arrogant, I guess, but I didn't want to be distracted by any peer opinion. I just really wanted to get on with being as creative as I could in, in the sense of expressing what was there. And I didn't want to look at what consumers might want or panels might want or expect me i thought that was all a distraction so i didn't do it you didn't want the normative aspect of someone telling you what you should do for your own good yeah that's correct <laughs> and so you you turn out the water veil and the polish hill in the early 80s and for me the water veil was the one you drank while you were waiting for the polish hill to get ready kind of in the bottle yeah most people a lot of people saw it that way it's more generous early and um uh the polish hill is very much about later flavor and so I think it's just a little bit more to the water valve in terms of early flavors, a, a little bit more expressive up front, a little bit more obvious lime. It comes out at you a little bit, just sort of gently, but towards you, whereas Polish Hill is just there and you need to, you need to look and concentrate. So yeah, I think the water valve is more expressive early and uh, yeah, a lot of people did drink it early. For me, I mean, in the 90s, it was really, Polish Hill was really kind of an outlier in terms of acidity level and how zippy it was. But now, you know, because I drink a lot of Muscadet now and I drink a lot of quite dry, zippy wines, it yeah. feels like a normal thing to drink. But I remember drinking it at the beginning and thinking, whoa, that's a lot of zip, you know? That's interesting because um, I, I think it's, it probably hasn't changed much. So I guess that's palate change on your part. But it, they probably... There is more flavor now to me, I think, in Polish Hill, which is a subtle, I think we've just learned, it's only subtle, but we've learned a bit about viticulture and part of, we're now fully certified organic. And that's not such a big deal, I think. Uh, part of it, though, is finding that I think we're getting slightly more flavor at a little bit lower Bome. I know a lot of organic people say that and say, oh, it's because of the organics, but whether it's because of that or just cutting out uh, any, we used to use cow manure, Cutting out cow manure, for example, cutting out nitrogen and running the, the soils a little bit lower level and just relying on the medics to give back uh, nitrogen back into the soil. So relying on, on the clovers and the medics in, in the rows to balance the nitrogen levels seems to give us a better fruit flavour at a slightly lower bome, which means a slightly lower alcohol. But that's a long answer to um, I don't know why I suspect that things have changed a bit in that um, the wine's bone dry, uh, very crisp, it has a lot of flavour, and maybe people are just a little bit more accepting of that. I, I guess you're just referring to you anyway, but, but a lot of people, when they try Polish Hill, and this happened yesterday at the uh, tasting here in New York, a lot of people said, this is not what I expected. And that really got me because I managed to ask a few people why. They said it was just more generous and maybe a bit softer and uh, 
uh, not steely uh, acidic that they thought. And I think they were thinking about Riesling in general. So the two misconceptions I think of Riesling are that they might be sweet, and these, these two wines we're talking about are bone dry, and that they have a steely acidity or a really um, like a hard acidity, some people think. And to me, these wines, at least anyway, don't, don't show either. Riesling doesn't have to be like that uh, at all. And I think these are really two examples of just delicious wines that if you weren't prompted people to taste them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about the acidity being, um, you know, prominent. But it had to be kind of a tough road to hoe in the beginning because you have a, a brand, Australia, that's going for a different kind of wine entirely. And you have a dry Riesling when a lot of people are thinking, oh, Riesling's going to be a little sweet. Yeah. And there's yeah. probably not even a lot of awareness in Australia about Riesling. And the foreign yeah. markets are like, well, where's yeah. the cute kangaroo on the label? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the benefits or uh, something that really worked with me in those early years was ignorance, you know, on my part. And honestly, I just thought the first year I made 300 cases of each and I thought I really hope there'll be enough people out there that, uh, but, but I was confident there would be and I, I wasn't distracted by anything else. So the rest was really just noise and of what I heard of it. And to be honest, I, uh, I was quite shocked. I think in the 80s, uh, uh, someone from overseas from the UK said to me, wow, we love Riesling, um, 60% of your production is Riesling, that must really bother you. And I thought, no, I hadn't really, th why? I had to, had to ask them. <laughs> so did, you, did you tell them, wow, 60% you, of your production is probably tea. Does that really bother you? Yeah, you <laughs> exactly. So I, I, and it, it sort of made me realize then that I, I'd been working away, you know, tirelessly on something that had never occurred to me that, it could be or could go out of fashion. It, it never, uh, um, it, it wasn't something that I considered for a moment. Let's talk about the conditions of the fruit that you were getting. I mean, I think yeah. when people think about Riesling, sometimes they think about Botrytis. Or is that something that was part of your style, something you were getting in the fruit? Um, no. So uh, Botrytis, we rarely see maybe one year in 10 in the Clare Valley or even less. So Clare Valley is pretty dry, a lot of, lot of blue sky and uh, in general, the conditions suitable for botrytis don't occur. And to me, the Clare Valley is distinctive because it's a generous, full-flavoured Riesling. So we tend to use those that warmer, sunny weather with cool nights to build uh, quite a lot of flavour. And it works to have it, the wine dry. It works really well. What's confusing to Riesling producers in Europe is how we could have that and have a Shiraz vineyard nearby and ripen that as well because that wouldn't happen on the Rheingau. It wouldn't even happen on the Wackau or in Alsace. So that's an intriguing thing. To me, we're just using that extra bit of warmth and sunny weather to convert into a, a really lovely, generous, dry Riesling. And Botrytis really has no place, in my view, in that because it would add a, a level of complexity and potential broadness. So what we're looking for is keeping the fruit. It already is generous, so we don't want it any, any broader. Uh, and Botrytis tends to do that. And if you're in the Mosul, for example, a little bit, of, little bit of broadness and complexity, I think most winemakers would agree, wouldn't hurt. But we're at the, we're really, the Mosul is at one end of 
great regions in the world, I think, producing Riesling, but they tend to be with residual sweetness and high acidity. And at the other end, I think, would be regions like the Clare Valley where they're, they're more generous wines and dry. So in a way, more analogous to certain wines from Alsace, a little more sun. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Alsace is probably the, the although the Wachau in, in Austria is not that far in terms of climate profile. Um, but probably a little bit more drier, sunny weather than either of those two in general. What was the difference between purchasing the fruit and then developing your own vineyards? Did you move into a situation where you had younger vines for a while, or how did you lay yeah. out your own vines? Yeah, I, I kept on the, the private growers until the vines were about seven years old. So at that point, I thought that we were right to go alone. The viticulture immediately, I... Um, on our vineyard, I pushed further in terms of organics. I pushed that as well because I didn't feel it was appropriate to or reasonable to push local growers to the extent that I did. So we did a lot of work with um, the Gaia Vineyard, which is our Cabernet Vineyard, working out whether we could, from the 1980s, whether we could run a vineyard without chemicals. And we were pretty confident because uh, our vineyards are all, with the exception of one side, every all four vineyards don't have neighbours. So we place them, and I'm sure it looks confusing for people who, who see these vineyards in a paddock, um, why they've been placed that way. But if you could imagine what's underneath, we're tracking the subsoil and, and the rock underneath. And so by tracking those, we, uh, we've got some funny shaped vineyards. But what I found is that we could push that further and cut out all chemical input and do a few things that I wouldn't ask private growers to do in terms of building up a complexity of species, trying to get even insects and plants around the vineyards that are going to work with us. And that's a little it involves a bit of experimentation, but we're pretty advanced on that. And it's something, as I said, that we, we were happy to spend the money and the time to do ourselves, but we wouldn't have asked a local grower to do. And with fewer neighbors, that probably means less drift of herbicides and pesticides and stuff yeah. like that. We see that a big issue in Europe in that it must be very hard with a meter or two away from you is a, a neighbor who might have a different view. We find that we're free of that. One of the great benefits in Australia is that you know, we can plant what we want, but, you know, hopefully we do that responsibly where we want to. And we can also, in this case, uh, it isn't unreasonable to plant without neighbours. I mean, I just had to buy, say, 80 acres to plant 16. But it's still, um, to achieve what we've achieved, that's still a very reasonable thing to do. That simply wouldn't be possible in um, a well-known region in Europe. You just couldn't do that. Did you use rootstock or did you use clonal material or how did you plant the vines? So we planted all on our on their own roots. We're very fortunate in the Clare Valley doesn't have phylloxera. And in fact, South Australia is still phylloxera free. That makes it much simpler because the rootstocks can affect the, you know, the vigor of the expression. And although I wouldn't necessarily argue that it's better, it is really simpler because then we can use all of our experience to plant uh, Riesling, for example, on their own roots into different soils and get a very, what you might call, pure expression uh, of that site without the influence of a rootstock. That probably plays into the idea of being able to achieve ripeness with less sugar because I find a lot of Pie Franco wines have that ability. They have lower yeah. alcohol in the finished wine than the, the rootstock wines that are analogous. 
Yeah, I think it's some combination which I don't understand of OM roots using complexity and diversity to get uh, stability, and that probably was a, sounded a bit technical of the nitrogen story, but we just found that uh, the um, cow manure we used, which we thought was a very natural thing, was um, the supplier wasn't a certified organic supplier, and I found that quite amusing, I must admit, because I assumed that what was coming out of the back of a cow would probably be organic, but um, of course it, that's not necessarily the case. And so we moved from that was the only input to no input and then the nitrogen levels ran down and as I said the, the overall vigour dropped slightly and crops in, in the vineyard but what we have out of that is a much closer to a self-maintaining vineyard. We don't need to thin really much at all. We've got 50,000 vines, we balance every vine by eye but the guys might work, walk past eight or nine vines and then have to knock a couple of uh, bunches off it it used to be much more than that so we're finding we're not intervening as much and in that respect i think we're getting better result but as i said it could be the, any of those reasons or all of them that are contributing to this better flavor better balance at slightly uh, lower alcohols which i think is uh, is summarized often by people just saying it's organics but i think it's a combination of things do you find that those techniques have allowed you better drought resistance uh, yes, very much so. Uh, a really substantial difference. We're finding a lot more stability, and I guess it's a bit deep uh, in some ways, but uh, I don't know. For those who know the Gaia theory and uh, an Englishman named Lovelock, I haven't read a lot of books, but I was quite taken by the fact that he thought the Earth itself was alive and the complexity and diversity gave it extraordinary resilience. And he, he was in conflict with the Greens in the 1980s because they were saying, well, the world's fragile. But ultimately, the, the message was the same, that if you knock the species out, you knock out the resilience. And that is, in effect, what we've been doing. Uh, the climate, he suggested, would become more unstable and, and warm up. And so I think they're talking to him a little bit more seriously now about what else he's got on his mind, because uh, he didn't predict it perfectly, but he, he certainly got the direction correct. And that was, was that an influence for you naming your red wine vineyard Gaia? Yeah, and the good news was, Virtually, I mean, not many people know about it now, but really no one knew about it then. Um, I was a bit thrown in 1990 because that was the year of the environment. So this was in the 1980s, remember? So it was a long time ago. And for those who know Olivia Newton-John, sort of famous Australian, um, she named her an album Gaia. And uh, I was really concerned that people might say to me, did you, you know, name the, the wine after the album? But fortunately, I think for me, the, the album was a flop. And so... There was no association that, uh, that, that remained, This was sustained. But I think uh, it was definitely, um, naming the Vineyard Gaia was m my indulgence in a way, in that it meant a lot to me. I didn't mind that people didn't, didn't know what it meant. Um, it was a totally isolated vineyard on a 6,000-acre property, just five acres right at the top of the Clare Valley. I had this idea that Cabernet Sauvignon at a higher altitude would be the, produce a more elegant style, just a little bit more restrained, a, more, more, a longer, more savoury palate, hopefully. And Cabernet Franc, which I planted at 25% in the vineyard, so 75 Cabernet Sauvignon, 25 Cabernet Franc, would give a bit more perfume to the wine and a little bit lower overall tannin level. So this spot was on Red Rock facing east. It was the only five acres I could find in the 6,000-acre property. 
amazingly, that had all these ingredients. So I bought it from the owner and, and marked it off. There was a government road to the communication tower, which is just a few hundred metres away, and went about planting this vineyard, as I said, in the 1980s. And from 1990, we made a, a wine called Gaia, and uh, it, it's worked. Does the red rock imply that it's volcanic loam? I don't know. Uh, I know that it's around the 500 million years old, this profile. Same with Polish Hill and, and Springvale, actually. The, the rock profiles are in incredibly old. And that, of course, doesn't make better wine necessarily. But if people think these wines taste different to what they taste from Europe, there's a very good reason. The soils are really quite fragile compared to Europe and the rock structures are some of the oldest you know, on earth. Um, and all I could find out from producers like Seven Hill and Winderie, like the oldest producers of red wine, is that this seemed to be what worked better. And so I took that experience and uh, I, I went looking for a, a site that was climatically w what I wanted. And I guess it's against the rules because generally with a Cabernet, you put it close to the sea, maritime. But in my case, I was trying to get coolness or modified weather by going up in altitude. I'm not the only one in the world, of course, but it, it is a bit counterintuitive. But it seemed to make sense to me at the time. And I'm happy that, that in that case, anyway, that thought and analysis um, has proved to be successful. Do you find yourself picking Cabernet Sauvignon perhaps a little earlier than some other people in Australia? Recently, uh, that vineyard we picked as early as late February. Uh, it used to be late March. In 1990, I think we were, were picking it probably about 25 days later than we're picking it now, which on average, I mean, big variation in. So perhaps a little bit earlier, yeah, even though it is a very cool spot. So that's quite intriguing. But again, low, low yields... A bit of uh, natural diversity seems to be working in our favor. And what was your experience of the first few vintages? What did you start to think about the wines you were making? What was challenging? I think with the Rieslings, not a lot of thought there. I think it, from 1981, to me, it was an easy decision to just put them out. And I was very happy with the result. And I was, I was equally happy with the, the uptake because they sold out very quickly. I wasn't bothered about the style because there were enough people who I thought it was right. So it's always that bit of a risk that it's, uh, you know, the Steve Jobs thing of, you know, people don't know what they want until you show them. There is maybe uh, that there is a risk of that being misunderstood, but I always thought that that's the direction where it should come from. You know, you, you pick a site that you think is very well suited to a variety or a selection of varieties and then you work really hard to get the best out of that uh, site. And you hope like hell that it is a special site because if it's not special, you've been wasting your time. Um, and so to me, Polish Hill and uh, Watervale, which became Springvale, were both lovely, really quite powerful expressions of, of, of place. And I never worried about trend or any other external influence, to be honest. What about vintage variation? Is this an area where things vary a lot from year to year? The warmer years show more generosity, but for both. So if you were to graph them, if you like, because I tend to think in shapes and um, sort of better at uh, shapes than I am with English, I think. So, but I, I always see that the warmer years is an elevated generosity in both 
wines, but the profile remains essentially the same shape. So a, a warm year, we would be suggesting maybe uh, the wine peaking in 15 years, whereas in a cooler year, it's probably more like 20 or, or more. So the Polish Hill, you think that it can go, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the bottle? Yeah, so we, we think uh, 20 years is a good safe bet. And of course, with all these wines being under screw cap since 2000, it means that that's one input that where the variability has been overcome and you've got almost complete consistency. And that's been a major breakthrough, I think, uh, without talking about screw cap because it's uh, sort of a non-event in Australia, but I guess here is still something that is debated. I think the, the most succinct thing, uh, way of putting it is that, to me, I always saw screw caps as offering the potential of great wine, not just great bottles. By eliminating the variability with cork, that was the one major flaw in any quality control. I mean, my quality control otherwise could be almost perfect, but then we put a cork in and we lost, uh, we could lose up to up to 7% of the wine could be significantly compromised and still is by people who use cork. But we, we're happy that we've moved on and have something more reliable. You were one of the early people to do that. Yeah. In um, Australia. Yes, and I, I have joked, I think, that I was unofficially known as the king of screw cap. But when I heard that, I thought, did think straight away what sort of crown would that uh would it be it's not a prestigious association but the truth is there are a small group of people that push this through i know i put in i think i put in 1500 hours of logged of my own time to get this done which was you know unpaid but it seemed the only way to do it so the idea was as winemakers we should go out and explain to people press and consumers why screw caps and without any other fanfare, that would be the way to get it adopted. And the more people we could take with us, the better. And so when the New Zealanders moved as well, like one year later, they were already on the move, but we collaborated in a broad sense. And so we, we got an acceptance in Australia and New Zealand of uh, almost 100% now uh, screw cap. But I notice here it's still something that is, is questioned, particularly on red wine. And so the debate, I'm sure, is, is yet to be had here of the merits of it. Did you feel like you were getting a higher percentage of faulty corks than other regions of the world might be receiving? No. We drink at home, we would drink maybe nearly 60% imported and still do. And I would say that uh, the failure rate is, I don't know, between maybe, maybe more, between 2 and 4%. We would just pour down the drain. Um, and it hurts uh, to do that. However, if we want to see those and enjoy those wines, that's the only way we can buy them. So we continue to buy them. But we build in now. If I go home, my the wineries has a cellar, and that's where we keep our own stock. And uh, um, when I'm going home, if I'm taking a wine under cork, I take two bottles to save me having to drive back to the cellar and get another one uh, when when the disappointment is there. But with screw cap, I'm happy to take one. So along with the change in perception and screw caps, was there a change in perception in Riesling in the domestic market of Australia? Did people start to look at Riesling differently? Yeah, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but it's um, the other, I think, major challenge for me that was separate to the what I've done in a winery and building, building the winery in the business 
is that in 1993, Australia introduced what I thought would be maybe arguably the best labour integrity laws in the world. Regrettably, they excluded Riesling. And so Australians had a habit, as many people around the world, I guess, of adopting names back in the 60s uh, for, for the wines that were being created. So they wanted to tell people that they were Burgundy-like, whatever that is, and called them White Burgundy and, and Chablis. And, and, of course, sparkling wine was Champagne. And the French, understandably, were a bit upset about all that. And over the quite a long period, they had all of those eliminated because they're region-specific. Uh, the one that was an exception, oddly enough, only one, was Riesling. In Australia. In Australia, yeah. And it appears that Riesling, for some reason, is a, is a name that's been misused in a number of places around the world. But, of course, there was no one to object to the Riesling misuse except for Riesling producers like us. So the majority of Australian winemakers signed a petition saying, you can't have Riesling excluded from a label integrity program. But a couple of larger companies really thought that it would affect their um, bag-in-box sales, I guess, or cheaper wine. Kind of calling a a fresh, fruity wine a Riesling, even if it didn't come from the Riesling grape variety or not all of it was Riesling. Exactly. So there was a real risk, um, well, clearly misunderstanding. And so it took um, seven years of lobbying the government to get this turned around. And we had a major breakthrough in 2000. So it was just a matter of, to be honest, it was a matter of an individual having to be me stepping up through the press and on television saying that it appeared the government was compromising the image and reputation of Australian wine. So that was controversial, but it caused the law to be changed very quickly after that. So it means that uh, not, not until 2001 in Australia was Riesling fully protected by law. And so there was, there was if there were, was a misunderstanding prior to that, it was perfectly understandable because it wasn't all legal prior to that. So our history of having Riesling acknowledged as a, a potentially great variety producing exceptional wines in many cases, it, the, really the, the true history goes back in terms of labelling to 2001. Which is really not that long ago, really. Not, not very long at all. And that's the same vintage area as the move to screw caps by one or two vintages. Yes, exactly. So screw cap and label integrity on Riesling you go back to this critical time in Australia's history. So you also today make a Riesling that has a little bit of RS, a little residual sugar. And yeah. What was the learning curve on that and why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I, um, I planted another vineyard on our Waterville vineyard. I mentioned that 80 acres planted 16. Over the hill was an area marked out by a geologist that had checked out the whole block and it was you know, long and thin. Uh, and I had this uh, yellow rock on it that would cause the vines to be a little bit uneven if I planted through there. But the advice of the geologist was maybe, but understand it won't be an even vineyard. So I planted it and was surprised when I saw the first fruit. I walked the vineyard and I found it had not the lime and lemon I expect from Waterville. Uh, that's, that's very characteristic of impact, the Clare Valley generally, but particularly Waterville. It had a more like a honey and uh, some blossom characters, qualities that uh, I hadn't seen. And it reminded me, oddly enough, of a vineyard in the Rheingau that I'd walked years before. And I I think that's really drawing a long bow because the Rheingau and the Clare Valley are very different climates. 
but it's it, the quality of the fruit, the flavor reminded me of that. And I thought I, I need to look at European approach to this and see if I can make a, a wine that's almost dry with a lot of flavor and a balance that comes from a higher acidity and a lower pH. So we changed the viticulture. We changed our approach to winemaking and released the wine, which is now known as Alia. And, uh, and uh, I think it took a long time to get it right, but I think the balance and uh, the qualities, I think, is looking quite beautiful on that wine. So that's only uh, now the fourth release coming out now. What do you see when you have a wine that has RS from Riesling versus no RS? I mean, is it a different flavor expression? Do you get different kinds of aromas? Uh, yes, well, you can do, yes. I think it's a, it's a subtly different expression and, and perfectly, of course, legitimate with Riesling. For example, with Chardonnay, that doesn't work very well. You know, I mean, it, it, I'm sure people have tried it, but you can imagine that because of the aromatics with the perfume with Riesling, I think some Riesling fruit in particular can take that as sweetness. In general, I think, in the world, sweetness has been used to balance the acidity, which can be, you know, quite high with Riesling. And so the Mosel would be the best example where a dry Mosel is, is seriously, can be seriously challenging on the, and, you know, you probably want to, you know, might want to book uh, your dentist pretty soon after you try a few of those. So it's all about balance. And to me, Riesling lends itself beautifully uh, with the good examples to sweetness balancing the palate, it needs to have flavor there, to, of course, as well to, to, to make it work. But uh, to me, then, you've got an extra dimension, a little bit of sweetness, the, the perfume uh, lift and this flavor, which can be, you know, anything from citrus to white fruits or white peach or, you know, uh, mandarin, um, you know, I mean, it can go anywhere. But to me, that's just part of uh, what Riesling can offer. You also make Semillon, you blend it with Sauvignon Blanc, but how is Semillon yeah. different as a grape variety than Riesling? I mean, is that a yeah. different ballgame? Yeah, it's certainly fuller, and we get lovely citrus profiles. We decided to make Semillon Sauvignon Blanc from Semillon in the Clare Valley because I love the, that sort of citrus and a little bit of tropical character, whereas, for example, a region that's cooler like the Adelaide Hills further 100 kilometres south, 60 miles south, Semillon from there can be quite grassy. And I see in the Margaret River, which has been the most successful, I guess, of Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc, can get a little bit of that grassy character. So I love the citrusy profile of Clare Valley Semillon. And I do really like Sauvignon Blanc from the Adelaide Hills, where it has a really strong, quite pungent perfume. And so my feeling was to do a blend of Semillon Sauvignon Blanc. My version was to have the vineyards in different sites so get the best site for each and in fact they're 60 miles apart but I think if I explain I've, I've tried to explain to customers you know what the logic is and I think most people when they see that wine it goes they, they go together beautifully at a ratio of 75 25 75% uh, semion um, but that's I think that's a long answer my apologies for that but uh, just to show that um, the logic that goes through uh, with every wine, to me, I think that makes sense. And yet, most Semillon Sauvignon Blancs in the world would be from vineyards that are very close together or part of the same vineyard. But I mean, distance seems like part of the Australian wine industry in general. There seems like there's a lot of distance involved between wineries and vineyards, and vineyards and vineyards, and grapes and wineries. 
Yeah, and I guess we, we, we've got the benefit, and I, I'm thinking back to when, when I did the uh, training as, uh, as, uh, in, in winemaking, there was some criticism about how we thought about climate, and uh, we'd spent a lot of time on climate and not much time, if at all, on rock profiles and soils and nutrition and the impact that it can have on expression of individual varieties. It, it needs to be seen in context, though, because uh, the Europeans in general had all that sorted out. So if you looked at somebody like me wanting to be in wine, chances are, you know, my father or my parents and their parents uh, were involved in wine and so I take over. In Europe? Yes, in Europe, yeah. And in Australia, the equivalent was me starting many, some, some on second generation, but there were many, many people starting like me. And so we needed to understand the principles of climate the Europeans needed to obviously need to understand the importance of terroir uh, because they're taking over hopefully something that is significant terroir from in their family. But with us, we needed to get the climate right first and then we needed to learn about how within a certain area the expression can change according to where you plant. So in Australia there was uh, getting the climate right and then starting to drill down to sub-regions and then it seems that later this understanding of place came through. And I think, to be honest, as you, I think, already indicated, the Grosset Polish Hill and Springvale were, or Watervale, were two of the first wines to really show that to the public in Australia. And that's a, a learning process that I think that's where we were at. So that was quite new at the time, but it made perfect sense that that was just part of our learning progress and our progression as we matured as a country, as a wine-growing country. Do you see these first-generation startup wineries being passed on to second-generation children, or are they being folded back into corporate umbrellas? Wow. Um, it's interesting because at my age now, a lot, uh, customers often ask me if they, well, when, if they get the opportunity to get a bit personal, what's the, what's the story with my children and what will I do? And until recently, I hadn't thought about it. I think my feeling is that regrettably where we've seen corporate takeovers, it more often than not hasn't really been in the interest of that, of that brand or that winery. Um, that sounds judgmental, but just looking at the numbers, for some reason, corporate approach and longevity of, of a particular winery, its reputation and its label don't, don't seem to go together that well. And so family-owned operations seem to be more consistent with ongoing success. And I guess part of it is that whatever the price that's offered along the way or whatever incentive or whatever's involved, there are people like us who would just um, say that's lovely that someone thinks that the business that I've worked for 35 years to build up is worth that. Uh, however, if my children are interested in that, in continuing it, that's what I'd rather see. And you chose to work with Fiano. Did you make that decision based on flavors or did you make that decision based on growing conditions and drought resistance or what led you to that choice? Yeah, it was one of those decisions where we looked, and it's not just Fiano, but we, we looked at the warmer areas, what works well, what, has a, what, what is an expressive variety that, that has a lot of appeal to us 
that could be planted in the Clare Valley where it's cooler. And the and the logical thing, winemakers around the world, I'm sure, are doing this logically. If you have a feeling that the climate's changing and generally warming, if that's your, your view, then this makes perfect sense to take a variety that's done well in a warmer climate and see what you can do in a cooler climate. Um, Viano was uh, is a good example of that in that I thought it had lovely flavour, had some aromatics but more texture, quite a different wine to to Riesling. And I thought that that would work really well in the Clare Valley. And so I planted it on really weak soil because I heard that if you plant it into vigorous soils, it can lose its definition. So the Italians made that point very clear to me. I may have overdone it because I think it took seven or eight years to get a crop where I put it, but... Um, but what we found is that we're getting quite a um, concentrated flavour uh, and we're using Semillon and Fiano together, which I don't think has happened very often. But that's another example of, I think what I've tried to do is, uh, with anything, is uh, work on calculated risk, you know, considered risk in every case. I'm not a big risk taker, but I look at all of the things and think this is not, going to break me if it's wrong and I really want to do it because I feel that the chances are very good. Um, it has worked well, I think, but I mentioned that we, we also planted Alianico with exactly the same logic behind it and it didn't work. So all of the, you know, when it comes down, you can do all the research, do the extrapolations, but ultimately it's a matter of planting the vines and waiting six or eight years and in fact it was eight years with Anionico and I pulled it out so by no means is everything that I've attempted and thought out that looked perfectly logical in my mind has that worked. What might be next for you I mean it seems like you've achieved so much you've been a part of some real momentous changes inside of Australia whether you plan yeah. to be or not so what would be the next challenge for you? I guess there's two things um I love the calculated risk, uh, and so I wouldn't rule out any other. A red blend is what I'm fascinated by at the moment. I really get very excited about blends, and I think the great thing is that Australians can do, it uh, sounds a bit, I was going to say do what we want, not what we want, but um, we can experiment with putting together varieties that may not have been put together before anywhere else in the world. We don't have the restrictions of Europe, and so... I think with the experience that I have or someone like me has, there's a chance to put together something that hasn't been done before. But I mean, it needs anything I do, I think, I feel there's a huge responsibility to my customers because of their expectations. So I'm going to go in with accepting that I might get it wrong, but I'll try it out. The other thing which is not related to wine, I suppose, is that I set up a charity called Grosset Guy Fund, and um, that's for um, health and you know, to, to health and education of young people. And that's come out of being successful in wine. That we we invest things. This might seem off the track, but I'm just saying, I guess in a way that we've had an enormous this success that we've had. Uh, I thought, what can we do? How can we extend what I've learned about? from Gaia and about what we've done. And I think the two things that I've taken away would be that our Indigenous culture, so Aboriginal culture, obviously the people are very challenged in dealing with uh, some major challenge in, in their communities. 
what I found when I looked into whether terroir was a word that was in their culture, I found that it was. But it always had people involved. It was never just about that. And what I found is that in their culture, if you say, do you own something, they would say yes. Uh, and does it belong to you? The answer is the same. But when you say, does, do you belong to it? It was the same answer. So what that's really brought up is the whole thing of being aware that I might own vineyards now and I own a business. However, I'm really the custodian and I have a responsibility. And I think the charity was a way of extending that by calling it Gaia. It was, it might seem off at a tangent, but to me, it's more of the same. That is that if we can give back, we're taking care of the land, we earn a living from the land and being responsible as um, uh, Australians said once that, you know, you, if you abuse the land, it's like self-mutilation. And so I think if we're doing the right thing on that, the, the other thing we can do is to leave it to our children and do something for their health and education. And to me, that all ties everything that I'm doing together quite nicely. Jeffrey Grosset, he's taken considerable risk in a considered fashion to achieve something that hadn't been accomplished before. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Libby. Jeffrey Grosset of Grosset Wines in the Clare Valley of Australia. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.